morning and welcome to Rising. We have an amazing Wednesday show for you today. Brianna, what are we talking about? Well, Prince Harry is making the rounds promoting his scandalous new tell-all. Amisha Cross and Angie Speaks join later to discuss what this could mean for the British monarchy. Plus, an insider report found 78 members of Congress violated insider trading rules last year. We'll tell you who they are later. But first, we have some big news this morning. All flights across the United States were temporarily grounded around 6 a.m. Eastern due to an FAA technical outage of the notice-to-air mission system, which alerts pilots and other personnel about airborne issues and other delays. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg confirmed the FAA systems were fully restored and the ground order was lifted at approximately 8.50 a.m. According to Flight Aware, as of 9 a.m. this morning, roughly 4,500 U.S. flights have already been delayed and 800 have been canceled. Now, what we don't know is whether the technical outage came as a result of system error or a possible cyber attack. The White House has, however, stated there's no evidence the outage was intentional and an investigation will be launched. Today's snafu comes just a month, of course, after Buttigieg landed in hot water over his handling of Southwest's disastrous technical failure last month. One Twitter user quipped back to the former mayor this morning, with your qualifications, how long could it be before things are back online? I guess I'll walk. <laughs> and it has been uh, a really bad couple weeks for Secretary Mayor Pete. Um, you know, one <laughs> airline disaster after the other. This one... I don't know. Uh, maybe this is just some kind of technical glitch. Could have happened under any administration or under any circumstance. Um, it's frustrating that there can be a glitch that then takes down, that, that leads to the cancellation of hundreds of flights, uh, thousands of flights, people are delayed. I mean, it's such a headache. Yeah, this happened this morning, and the crisis was resolved in a couple of hours. But as we know from what happened over the holiday season, that's just the beginning, the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so much of the critique that Pete Buttigieg and the airlines have gotten over the past month or so is because of what happens after cancellations. Airlines offering less than what they're legally obliged to offer for people who experience these incredible delays. Um, and Frankly, there was advice given, um, efforts made by people like Bernie Sanders back during, around the 4th of July, the last time there was a huge travel day, anticipating that certain kinds of uh, um, penalties needed to be in place for airlines to prevent them from making uh, mistakes that were preventable, the kind of mistakes that were happening over the course of the holiday season, where Southwest in particular had, what, 2 million people grounded, an unprecedented number of people, precisely because they had failed to update their technical systems, not just because of the other constraints that all of the airlines were dealing with. So that's a problem. Massive consolidation in the industry has been a problem. And the fact that this is something that a lot of people don't know, that you aren't allowed to bring uh, civil class action suits against airlines the way you can in other types of industry. So frankly, the only person that can regulate the airline industry is Mayor Pete and the Department of Transportation. So when they fall asleep at the wheel, everybody suffers. Imagine if you didn't have to get to the airport two hours early <laughs> to have your, your liquids of a certain size confiscated from you before you sat down in the terminal. How much more efficiency we could have <laughs> if this totally pointless display of, getting, of pat, getting patted down and taking off your shoes and your belt 
promotes no one's safety, has no legitimate purpose whatsoever. Everyone recognizes that, and yet we still do it every day, leading to gross inefficiencies where people are stranded at the airport. It's not easy to get through to the airport. To, you, know, you have to get there way ahead of time to sit at your gate, to wait for your flight. You're, you're, you know, if you live near the airport, I live like 10 minutes from the airport. Yeah. I, I could literally show up. That's as I do for when I take a train. Right. I get on the train as it's pulling away right. because there's no security. Right. <laughs> yeah, and another part of that is airports are so often so distant from cities and so mm-hmm. difficult to get yeah. to. You're lucky to DC's live in one of the, one of the lucky ones here. Right, although now that the, the yellow line is down to the airport, that makes it a little bit more complicated. Right. I'm going right. to stop talking before I dox they, myself. They sh- no, they shut, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they shut down that one in order to build a metro line right. to Dulles, right. which is a horrible airport. But there, I mean, there's so many air, you know, cities where there's no... Yeah public transportation really available to the airport whatsoever. And there's others like New York where taking it is just such a such an overwhelming experience and the airports are so underdeveloped. So there's a lot to be done there and it's it's odd to see so many investments being made and so much money being spent and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit in our um, insider trading piece later on in the show. But the priorities of Congress just seem remarkably out of whack and it is frustrating that the consumers always seem to get the, the last bite of the apple. At, uh, at the New York airport, not JFK, uh, LaGuardia, uh, I don't know how to say that. Uh, that one, you can be passed. There's an area beyond security where you can get trapped. Where there's no bar. <laughs> Robbie, priorities, priorities. Just saying. That's truly, truly an international um, human rights travesty. All right, I'm looking forward to hearing what's on your radar, Brianna. That'll be up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, today I ask, should poor people get audited more than the rich? Well, of course they shouldn't, but regrettably, that's the world we live in. In fact, the IRS audits poor families at five times the rate as rich ones. According to a study by Syracuse University, Americans earning less than $25,000 a year are audited at a rate five times higher than everyone else. So why is this happening? Well, the IRS relies heavily on an auditing strategy called correspondence audits. These are letters from the IRS asking for documentation on a specific line item on a tax return. In 2021, 85% of all audits were conducted this way. The problem is over half of those audits targeted workers so poor they had claimed an anti-poverty earned tax credit. How are the rich faring by contrast? Well, Taxpayers earning between $200,000 to $1 million a year are 66% less likely to be audited as the working class and poor. And while taxation of millionaires was up slightly in 2021 as compared to the two previous fiscal years, the IRS only audited about a third as many millionaires as it did back in 2015. The disgusting reality is that the most audited place in America isn't Wall Street or Beverly Hills. It's a place called Humphrey County, Mississippi, a poor county and the poorest state in the union. One third of the population is below the poverty line there. More than half the county's residents claimed the earned income tax credit. The top five counties in terms of audits are all predominantly African-American, rural, and poor. And the least audited counties, well, like Loudoun County, Virginia, which has the highest median income in the country, they're all rich. They're all predominantly white and affluent. Any reasonable person looking at this problem would likely come to the same conclusion. 
the IRS's resources should be focused on auditing wealthy tax cheats, not harassing poor people who barely have two pennies to rub together. So why aren't they? Well, according to that same Syracuse study, the reason is that investigating higher income earners requires more resources. Rich people have teams of accountants and lawyers to hide their money and exploit complicated tax loopholes. Unlike the simple correspondence audits, auditing millionaires and their complex tax returns requires more significant training and experience. So with a constrained budget, the IRS has decided to swap highly trained agents for tax examiners who, in turn, go after poorer Americans with simpler taxes. Since 2010, the number of IRS revenue agents has dropped by 41 percent. And as a consequence, the number of rich people audited has also dropped. And there was an additional 31 percent decline during the Bush and Clinton administrations. Fewer IRS employees means less face-to-face -face auditing necessary for complex high-income audits. In 1981, wealthy people were audited at a rate, again, five times higher than even 1999. What's going on here is a systemic defunding of the IRS that's causing poor and working people to be targets, while rich people get away scot-free. So it's no surprise that the rich people in Congress, in both parties, have at various points in U.S. history pushed further defunding of the IRS. Not only does defunding the IRS concentrate audits among the poor, it also hurts the U.S. budget, as outstanding tax balances from rich people are way larger than the poultry sums recouped from audits of poor people. The U.S. Treasury loses about $163 billion each year in taxes owed by the richest Americans, the top 1%. That's enough to cancel almost all medical debt, and it's nearly enough to fund the entire Department of Housing and Urban Development. Shouldn't the rich pay their fair share? Now, given that the IRS has engaged in predatory targeting of low-income people in the past, it's completely legitimate to have concerns about what it means to increase funding to the agency, even if the goal is simply to return funding levels to the levels they were at, say, 10 years ago, when more one-percenters and fewer low-income people were getting audited. There should be a healthy discussion about how the IRS can create accountability mechanisms that require, say, a certain percentage of audits to be focused on the rich, or which mandate that additional funds be devoted to employees who exclusively target millionaires. Note that the IRS targeted, just audited rather, just about 2.2% of millionaires' tax returns last year, which represents a huge decline since 2015, when they were more highly funded. But simply defunding the IRS is likely to exacerbate the problem. Leaving the IRS with fewer highly trained agents that can handle, say, Jeff Bezos' tax returns, and plenty who can come after you. Listen to Republican Representative Mike Johnson, sponsor of the legislation to defund the IRS, attempt to defend this policy. Do you think that there is a problem in this country of wealthy individuals and companies not paying their fair share in taxes? That's, that has been a problem, of course, but it's, it's, um, it, it, we're not preventing that. The IRS has an important job to go after tax cheats, absolutely, and we support that. We're the law and order team. We, we want these things to be done properly. but. What this provision would have had the effect of doing 
is making life harder for middle-class working families and small businesses. Full stop. That's what the nonpartisan analysis evaluated, and that's why we know that this was a top agenda item on the hearts and minds of the American people. Well, why not? That's why we delivered it. So instead of just removing the funding, why not saying you can use the funding, but you can only go after individuals who make over $5 million a year? Look, we, we're, we're open to a, a proper analysis and a, and a pro proper instructions from Congress on the use of those funds, and maybe that would be a worthwhile exercise, but that is not what happened with the legislation that passed last year, and that's why we had to unfund it and repeal it effectively. We did that last night. Sadly, it was a partisan, uh, down partisan lines. I wish we'd had some Democrats who followed common sense and went along with us on it, but hopefully we'll, we'll do better with that in the days ahead. But there is no effort to actually make this bipartisan, because even if it passes the House, it's not going to get through the Senate, and, and President Biden has said he's going to veto it. So if you actually want to make sure that nobody... I'm just going to make up a number now, but let's say $2 million. Nobody who makes under $2 million a year is even touched by this. Why not work with Senate Democrats on something that can actually become law? We're open to bipartisan solutions if it will actually, actually uh, obtain the, the needed objective. I appreciate that admission from Representative Johnson about the fact that rich people are getting away with being tax cheats. But if Johnson genuinely believes that rich people should pay their taxes, he should absolutely commit to a bipartisan resolution to fund audits for people earning over a certain income threshold. Republicans' failure to do so raises some questions, especially given their own financial stake in the matter. I mean, it's easy to see why wealthy Congress members on both sides of the aisle, who were on average 12 times richer than the average American would be eager to hide behind the poor people of Humphrey, Mississippi, to earn themselves a get-out-of-audit-free card. I completely respect the skepticism of folks on both the right and the left when it comes to funding the IRS. It's healthy and, frankly, really well-placed. We have to ask ourselves, though, is there a better solution to this than letting wealthy elites get away with taking bailouts, giving themselves tax cuts, and writing the rules so that their financial crimes are simply less likely to be caught? Hmm. And this is a tough question. I, I have a lot of friends on the left who are very skeptical of increasing IRS funding because they are distrustful of these government police agencies that have done so much over time to use their power to persecute people. And that's a really legitimate fear. But I think we have to be having a conversation as a, a bigger, broader populist community about how to make sure that doesn't happen at the same time that we don't let rich people off the hook entirely. Yeah, as I said yesterday, I, I think in the long term, the only way to have a system that's fair where the rich people aren't um, avoiding paying taxes and then you have poor, less fortunate Americans really getting pummeled by the system is to have a system that's less complicated, yeah. that doesn't uh, allow itself, because the more elaborate it is, the more wealthy people or powerful people, people who are well-connected, can, uh, you know, to make the process take a long time, can find ways to, to uh, sometimes, ways to cheat the process, but it's not even, it's, it's cheating some kind of moral or ethical sense, but oftentimes it's perfectly legal. Mm -hmm. Often they're like they're doing things that are that are legal if you read the fine print mm -hmm. that you can get away that you can delay paying certain things, and that's just a nature. The tax code gets so complicated. Every time people try to fix it, they end up making it more complicated. They say, "Well, here's a little fix we need," but they're just adding more and tax. Some of, some to of that's the, not an accident, right? Yeah. As we just talked about yesterday a little bit, I think. 
there are millions and millions of lobbying dollars spent toward making sure that people like uh, these 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 H&R uh, uh, Block and mm-hmm. TurboTax and all these tax preparers have a multi-million dollar industry of folks that are reliant on them to file their taxes because the penalties are harsh and everyone is afraid of auditors, especially lower income people. And it's a whole predatory system. So I completely agree with you. The government knows how many how much you owe in taxes, and they should tell you. Um, but I, I'm curious about this um, hypothetical. I, I'm not sure if this would be true or not. But if it were the case that to issue people, like send everybody the receipt of what taxes they owed in advance of um, uh, you know tax tax day, required more staffing. If that mm-hmm. if that were the case, and it required more funding to the IRS and more staffing. Would you and would you be open to that? And do you think others would be open to that, or would there, do you think there's kind of like a blanket um, antipathy for the idea of increasing funding to the agency at all? I certainly think if you put it to the American people that you don't have to figure out your taxes anymore, they'll just tell you how much you owe, and you just pay that. I. I Imagine that will be a popular proposal. <laughs> Look, it seems like we just came up with some bipartisan legislation here. <laughs> we'll see what Congress can do, and we'll have more rising right after this. President Biden responded Tuesday to revelations published this week that his lawyers found classified documents from his time as vice president at his former office in Washington last fall. He told reporters in Mexico City that he is, quote, surprised by the news, but praised them for doing what he says should have been done, which was to contact the National Archives about the discovery. Now, Biden is facing some public scrutiny over this, but host of the daytime talk show The View, Joy Bayar, doesn't seem to be very bothered. Let's take a look. Well, we all know that Trump is a liar and a thief, you know? We know that. So it's not that big a jump to say that he obstructed and he lied. We don't think that Biden is a liar and a thief, so we give him the benefit of the doubt. That's probably what's going on. The lying has been so invasive, mm-hmm. so ubiquitous, mm-hmm. that no one will believe the truth anymore. And that, that you can put that at the, at the feet of Donald Trump, who started the lying. Oh, joy. <laughs> joy, joy, joy. She manages to take what I think would be a perfectly defensible position, which is that these are, despite very on-the-surface similarities, different instances. I mean, the major difference being that Joe Biden tried to get back the documents that Donald Trump did not. <laughs> that seems to me a pretty key difference. But she manages to just butcher that difference and, and I think make everyone roll their eyes when she say, well, no, I, I have utter faith in Joe Biden because I worship him. No and- one thinks Biden's a liar. No one's ever coined the phrase lion Biden. <laughs> yeah. Joe, Joe Biden's never, never misrepresented his background or, or any. Joe Biden in some ways incredible. is the proto-George Santos. I mean, there are a lot of mulligans in, in his in his that history. Plagiarizing a, a speech was his was the thing he was known for. Correct. For years. <laughs> Correct. For years. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I, I, I think this is such a, a crucial point um, because so many times liberals will have the right substantive position and they manage to shoot themselves in the foot by overextending their argument and making these broad kind of moral claims that belie the fact that even if they didn't have the right side of the argument, they would have sided with this human being because it's all about red versus blue and good guy versus bad guy and not actually about the substantive underlying criticism here. Yeah, but some liberals have really painted themselves into corner, even though it is different, a little bit, but just taking it so seriously that he had, he had these documents without any evidence that these documents were like national security threatening. Doc- I mean, they classify everything because the government is overly sure. secretive about everything. And now, so I watched some cable news last night, and I, what you know, CNN treating this with 
utter solemnity. <laughs> Honestly, too seriously. It's, 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 this is not a big, frankly, look, I'm being honest with you, this is not a big story. What, so you think they're treating these documents they seriously? Have to, so but they that, have this panel with all these people going, oh, yeah, this is, wow, we got to really have this investigated and looked into it. To try to, to, try I, to it contrast frankly it to sounded silly, yes, because they took Trump. that so seriously, yeah. which it, it was more serious because Trump was, as Trump is combative about it, and, and, the, the, F, and the FBI came in and raided his his uh, premises in a very, in a way that I think was probably unnecessary, although that is characteristic of all police raids, mm. where they don't do it in a very friendly to the person whose property is being raided sure. sort of way, and that is itself a problem. One, normal, ordinary people deal with all the time, sure. not just political figures. But, uh, but yeah, and then on the other side, I watched a little bit of, of Fox, and, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, ha-ha, this is a double standard because, you know, they really threw the book at Trump over this, and Joe Biden was doing it too. And uh, it's just kind of, I guess it, it shows you when, when, when you're just like, if you're utterly committed to the position Joy Behar takes there, that everything Trump does is pathologically dishonest because he's, you know, Trump, orange man bad. Mm-hmm. You, ju- you have to do that. And then if you have a shred of integrity, you have to be really freaked out about Biden, too. Right, right. Which she does not have. So she did not have to be freaked <laughs> out about Biden. Well, despite his own document snafu now coming to light, President Biden was critical of documents found at Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago last year. Here's what he said about that on CBS's 60 Minutes. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? By that, I mean names of people who helped, or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. The White House has been tight-lipped about why the administration didn't come forward about this sooner, at least to the public. The documents found are said to include U.S. intelligence information, briefings on foreign nations like Ukraine, Iran, and the U.K. According to the AP, the White House has said the Department of Justice is combing through the documents marked classified. And I, I want to you know, really hit on a point I said earlier, which is like they classify way too much stuff. Mm-hmm. They're trying to keep their doing secret from the American people. Both, this is not a partisan thing. This is just the nature of the intelligence beast. They're involving themselves in matters that the American people do not approve of that often violate the Constitution in terms of spying, in terms of regime change, in terms of our support for for, for things the American people don't even support. And they try to keep it secret. So I really, I, I get a little... It's not surprising that the mainstream media has this exactly wrong. They're landing on the, oh, it's so scandalous and scary that, like, what if someone read a document? We have to keep document? the government secret. It's laughable. It's <laughs> yeah. laughable. Your job is to find out what is in those documents yeah. and share it with the American people. Yeah. Some things need to be kept secret. Some, yes, intelligence operations we have that are legitimate need to be secret, fine. But they keep so much stuff secret, and it shields them from accountability. For and sure. that should always be the bigger story. And, and, and that's not, it's not even on the mainstream media's radar. Do you think that Biden in that clip got out over his skis too much in saying, who could ever do this? This was such an irresponsible act. Like, who could have classified documents lying yes. around? And that, that, that's a lesson. Yeah. And who could? Why you? You. Never, right? you. <laughs> <laughs> there, but for the grace of God goes I, seems well, to be the lesson. Well, and it, it, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, of, of that Fauci deposition, mm. which I, I've come back to a couple times, where he's asked about signing off on, uh, they had the pause on gain-of-function research, but the policy was that, you, they, they could, they could um, avoid the pause. They could do it anyway. They could do a, a gain-of-function experiment if it was deemed important by someone, by Dr. Fauci. And he's asked during this you know, hour, uh, many hours deposition, 
well, did you sign off on any of those? Or were any of those signed off on? And he's like, yeah, I think so. And I'm like, well, did you personally sign those documents? Like, a lot of documents across my desk. I have no idea. That's not good. Mm-hmm. It's not good. Mm-hmm. You gotta, if there's so, <laughs> we, need, we need officials who like are cognizant of the things they're signing and would remember big decisions being made. Like he doesn't even, he doesn't remember the classified documents he has hiding in a closet of an office. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that Pre-COVID, I mean, a crisis of this magnitude hadn't necessarily come across the the transom. So the idea, even if there were kind of unmanifested risks to gain a function research, I'm not sure that it might have been as notable to him in the moment as it obviously is now. I I mean, they paused the research for a reason, though. Yeah, that's that's fair. Good reasons. That's fair. I think. Anyway, we will have more rising right after this. Please stay tuned. Thank you. Prince Harry's long-awaited memoir, Spare, was published on Tuesday, touching on topics such as the death of his mother, Diana, his marriage to American actress Meghan Markle, the rift between him and his brother, Prince William, his years in the Army, and his recreational drug use. He appeared on Good Morning America for promo and was asked his opinions on the monarch today. Let's take a listen. Do you think in the 21st century they're the place for the British monarchy? I genuinely believe that there is, not the way that it is now. Do they need to modernize? And if so, in what way? I think the same process that I went through with regarding my own unconscious bias would be hugely beneficial to them. It's not racism, Mm -hmm. but unconscious bias. If not confronted, if not learned and grown from, that that can then move into racism. His comments on his support of the monarchy have received major backlash online. One Twitter user wrote, doesn't matter what he says or what he exposes if he still aligns himself with and believes in the bloody imperial core that is the monarchy. Don't care who he fought so he could have a biracial wife. It simply does not matter if you believe in that racist institution. Joining us now to discuss is Democratic strategist and political commentator Amisha Cross and columnist at Newsweek and co-host of Low Society podcast, Angie Speaks. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right, Amisha, let's start with you. Uh, Obviously, there has been a lot of commentary about these two because of their Netflix special and now this book that's coming out, Spare, uh, plus Meghan Markle's um, kind of very existence from the beginning of their relationship has brought on a bunch of commentary about her race, what it means about the future of the crown. Um, There was the Oprah interview where there was the conversation about (laughs) how apparently there was uh, some uh, opinions about how dark the baby was going to be. And all of this has caused the British media in particular to be very critical of and have a lot of scrutiny on the royal pair. Do you think that the criticism about Harry's remarks here are warranted or are they part and parcel of a kind of maybe period interest in, in this couple that has been in existence in the, since the very beginning? Well, I think it's part of the natural interest. Um, the, the British were going to be, the Crown was going to be interested in, the firm was going to be interested in whomever uh, Harry decided that he was going to win. But I think that there's something to be said about his choice in a black woman, a biracial black woman from the United States of America. And it going back to the race issues that the monarchy as well as the UK writ large, have had with people of diverse descent for quite some time now. The attacks that Meghan is getting are quite similar to some of the ones that we've seen um, from Princess Diana, but they are amplified largely because of her race. Um, And there's 
evidence to showcase this from the drawings that um, showed her as an ape or her child as an ape, from the conversations about the skin color, the potential skin color of the child that she was going to bear, by all of the conversations about her being straight out of Compton when she's not even from Compton, California. There's so much there there when it comes to the racism associated with it. So I do disagree with Harry in terms of making this more of a biased conversation than one of racism. He needs to call it out. Quite frankly, racism is racism. And yes, there may be some bias that led to it, but there are a lot of conversations here that I think he quite frankly is missing, even though he's somewhat delving in and trying to peel back the onion on issues that have been part and parcel of how he was raised, of the culture he was brought up in, and of the monarchy itself. Angie, what's your perspective on this? Um, I think what we're seeing going on is sort of a clash of values. I mean, the royal family's motto for many years has been never complain, never explain. Um, and Diana was sort of the first uh, very sort of publicly involved with the media member of the royal family. And she was sort of both beloved by the media and maligned by the media at the same time. She had this sort of very, you know, toxic relationship with the media. And it's, it seems as if Harry is sort of following in her footsteps. He He's sort of leaving behind the, the notions of duty and uh, I guess self-restraint that the royal family uh, represents and going more towards this new modern source of power, uh, which is grievance, in my opinion. Um, there's accusing someone of, of victimizing you in, is in and of itself a, a power play in this day and age. And also um, there's something incredibly um, there's something incredibly difficult about being the quote unquote spare. Uh, throughout British history, the spare has had to uh, go and find his fame and fortune elsewhere. Um, the, the, the heir is who inherits everything. And it seems as if Harry is sort of using social justice lexicon, uh, really emotional issues about race, even emotional issues surrounding veterans, like on the Stephen Colbert show, in order to um, aggrandize himself. It's, it's uh, social justice lexicon, therapy lexicon, that's the language of power in this day and age. Um, and I, I don't think a lot of people realize that what's going on here is a power play. We're seeing a war between two factions of, of the elite. Angie, is there a meaningful difference between, let's say, Princess Diana going to the press and talking about her mental health issues, which were very stigmatized at the time, uh, talking about her choice to throw herself down the stairs while pregnant because she felt, um, you know, perhaps suicidal, for instance, and uh, Harry talking, you know, exposing so much about his personal life, talking about racism, using the social justice lexicon, as you put it, you know, because it does seem as though Princess Diana coming out in these ways about her mental health issues received perhaps kinder treatment in the press than the conversations about race that are happening now? Or, or is that a skewed perspective, uh, perspective on my part? Well, I think that when Diana came out, um, there was a lot of pushback initially during that period, especially after that famous BBC interview that she did. Um, there's always sort of been a suspicion and almost a, a revulsion, especially in British culture, towards oversharing emotional manipulation, that sort of thing. Um, and the idea that like, it's sort of this idea that like sharing my trauma is literally saving lives or whatever. Um, the monarchy are the elite at the end of the day. Their, their experiences are so far away from the experiences of the average person. I mean, you even get a taste of that from reading Spare, which I've kind of uh, skimmed through a little bit. <laughs> um, there's, it's, it's, I think the reason why there's a lot more backlash now is because um, we've seen this before. Um, 
Diana was sort of the prototype in culture for this kind of figure who uses grievance, who uses their own internal sort of turmoil as a way of getting power, as a way of getting attention. And now in this sort of new world of social media, um, there's a lot of currency to be had in accusing someone of oppressing you, or being a victim. They have an entire media empire, Netflix documentaries, children's books, all kinds of things. I, I honestly think it's just a, a modern power play. And it sort of, um, it sort of contrasts the old school power of the aristocracy um, and, and it, that these things are, are coming into conflict. Yeah, Amisha, I, I think, you know, part of this that interests me is, right, so these are very power, very elite, very wealthy people on all sides, the sides of this dispute, the family itself, the people still in good standing with the family, and then Meghan and Harry, obviously, you know, I watched um, some of that documentary and, you know, their pandemic experience, pandemic experience, horrible for everyone, but, you know, a lot nicer for them and their very nice mansion, <laughs> their ability to go to, like, nice beaches and everything. Tyler Perry's house. <laughs> right, Tyler Perry's house. I want to go to Tyler Perry's house. That sounds awesome. Uh, which is not like I want, I, I think it would be very gross to want them to suffer. And I, I think the way they're treated in the press can be really, you know, gossipy and really obsessed and really nasty. Um, but at the end of the day, they do have this tremendous power and privilege that then some some of the, oh, how, look how horrible we, our, our lives are because of the attention. Well, but there's a lot of perks that come with the attention and you're able to use the attention to really to give yourself even more power and privilege and prestige and wealth. Um, I agree partially. I think that with power, privilege, and prestige, that doesn't automatically eradicate or erode mental health issues. Um, we saw Stephen Twitch boss recently commit suicide. We've seen it with people in America like Robin Williams. We've seen it with a lot of people who also come from wealthy backgrounds. I think that there is something to be said about trauma experience. In Prince Harry's case, this is someone who watched his mom die, who knew, who acknowledged that his mom died at 12 years old. My mom passed away when I was a senior in high school. My younger brother was 12. Four months later, he committed suicide. I think that there is something to be said about the youth and what he saw and what he has consistently blamed the press for, which a lot of people do, to be quite frank, as it related to his mom's untimely death. And what he saw with the press, particularly as it related to them chastising and making his wife's life a living hell for quite some time and deciding to leave ultimately because after meetings with his family and them completely ignoring the, the, the issues that she was rightfully bringing up, he made a conscious decision that my wife has already lost a child. She went through a miscarriage. Um, she is having these traumatic experiences. I don't want a repeat of what happened with my mom. I think a lot of his book goes to him speaking truth to power to a certain extent based on the experiences that he had already had and what he saw growing up. The issues with him and his brother, I think are, are quite frankly juxtaposed with the fact that his brother was going to ascend to be king one day. Obviously being spare comes with its own, um, with its own idiosyncrasies. But beyond that, it is this was a story and a telling of a young man who has literally seen his life not be his own, who has been forced into this uh, into this era, not only of privilege, because I think that that's one argument. But the secondary argument here is one that he didn't choose. He didn't choose to lose his mom. He didn't choose to have a family basically turn against him or a or a uh, institution turn against him because of who he chose to win. These are things that are very real. And I quite frankly respect him for the decisions that he's made and the long trek that he has ahead of him because quite frankly it's not easy and it's something that he stepped forward in that many people would not have based on the power privilege prestige and the modicum of 
commonality that he's had for so long being a part of this British family, where many people, as he had you know, talked about before, many women have walked away from him because they did not want to walk into the hodgepodge of the crisis that comes from being in that family. And I think that he's very honest about what, what all of that is. And I'm quite frankly thankful that he's pulled back the veil because everybody has these traumatic and emotional experiences. And once you add race to it, once you add that element that nobody really wants to talk about because it gets in the weeds and it gets dirty and nobody wants to reveal that underbelly of their society, then things get a whole lot harder. And I think that we should be more thankful, quite frankly, that he is being as open and honest as he can be mm. right now and still dealing with the trauma on a daily basis. It has not gone away. Mm. Angie, what do you think about, about all of that? Is it ultimately a good thing that uh, Harry has peeled away the, the proverbial veil? I think most people, especially during a time of war and economic, like, you know, upheaval, are not really concerned. And I think it's incredibly manipulative when people who have a tremendous amount of power and privilege attempt to use their internal world, their internal struggles, their internal trauma as a way of making it seem as if they have some kind of congruency or understanding with a public that they're largely disconnected from. Um, and that they don't share a lot of experiences with. And I think that language like the language around social justice, language around mental health, language around things like, uh, you know, any sort of emotional kind of cultural issue. This is now the language of power. Harry's situation does not exist in a vacuum. And in this current day and age, that is the language of power. It is the language that people use in order to leverage mm. Um, in order to leverage their, their, their media presence, in order to leverage um, their, their, their persona, in order to get attention, all of these different things that translate into capital. And I don't think we can assess the Harry story and the Meghan story without taking, those, um, that, taking that into account. Many people suffer all kinds of things <laughs> all the time. Um, and I'm quite skeptical at this notion that just because a prominent person speaks out that they're doing it for the sole express purpose of quote unquote normalizing things or saving lives. I think these are very, very kind of naive explanations. Power. This is, mm. we're talking about the monarchy. We're talking about power here. But, and, and that's Angie, what's really going on. All that being true, I mean, part of what was so interesting with the documentary is, you know, as someone who's not British, coming to realize the obligation of the royal family members, uh, the idea that. The, the public pays for their lifestyles, so that they owe the public this number of appearances, Harry having to walk behind his mother's casket as a young kid. I mean, there is an extent to which Harry has been obliged to perform publicly his entire life in a way that a, a regular person who suddenly starts to try to exploit grievance culture to get attention, it does feel like a little bit more of a tit for tat. I mean, given the power of the firm and given the obligations from the royal family and the life that he's had to lead, you know, what is, do you, is there some fairness or justification in him then saying, okay, you put me in this position to be famous, you put me out in the front and now you're attacking me, that I should be able to defend myself in some way in the public and use the fact of my celebrity as a, as a shield against the attacks that are clearly or allegedly coming from the royal family and the relationship with the British media? Well, no, because the media has its own agenda. The media aren't therapists. The media are looking for what's going to get attention and that's going to draw eyes. And I think if you really have serious internal issues, you should go and deal with them, especially if you have all the resources to do so. Um, Harry seems to have this weird relationship with the media where he's at once enamored with it and sort of treats it like a home. 
while also saying that it's attacking him and it's maligning him and it's putting his family in literal danger. Like that's the sort of language that he's been using in all of these interviews that the media is literally putting him and his family in danger. Um, and and I, it was the same issue with Diana. Diana all at once hated the paparazzi, hated the media, hated the attention, hated that she couldn't have a normal sort of existence. I mean, they did, at they the same did time, she was a notorious oversharer um, and somebody who sort of invited mm -hmm. and courted that when it benefited her. I mean, the paparazzi did result in Diana's death, which I think complicates things and which really informs Harry's perspective here. Look, we could talk about this for a lot longer. I appreciate both of you uh, joining us here today. Yeah, really thought-provoking. Thank you both. Thank you. We'll have more rising for you right after this. According to a report by Business Insider, at least 78 members of Congress have failed to properly report their financial trades as mandated by the Stock Act. The act requires sitting members to disclose any stock trade made by themselves, their spouse, and any children labeled as dependents. The penalty for violation of the Stock Act is usually a $200 fine <laughs> that is often waived by the House or Senate ethics officials. Those on the list include Senator Dianne Feinstein, Rand Paul, Rick Scott, Sheldon Whitehouse, as well as Representatives Jamie Raskin, Mo Brooks, Dan Crenshaw, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I like some of those people. Don't yeah. like others as much. Sure. It's a it's a very bipartisan who's who. There are blue dog Democrats, more progressive Democrats, Republicans of every stripe. Mm -hmm. And I think that really speaks to the problem. One, the fine being so minor is yeah. kind of a tell about how seriously this kind of behavior is treated. And it's not the kind of issue that is opaque to the American public. I'm so tired of hearing politicians say, oh, this isn't a bread and butter. This isn't a kitchen table issue. This to, is to, such an issue that... Corruption runs to the core of what the average American mm -hmm. understands is what's wrong with Washington. It's a nonpartisan issue. Correct. You could you, watch, you ask the common man, it doesn't matter if they vote who they voted for in the last election, they will support making this disclosure requirements stronger, or frankly, they'll just think members of Congress should not be playing the stock market at all. Exactly. At all. Exactly. And when you start to look at the kind of businesses that they've invested in, it becomes a little clearer why this is such a conflict of interest. Pharmaceuticals. So <laughs> it's, it's pharmaceuticals. It's like Tesla. And you think about all of the mm -hmm. energy regulation that comes down the pike and the subsidies that are given to electric car companies like Tesla. Social media companies, Facebook. Exactly. Isn't, I, I believe former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was herself someone holding stock in that, <laughs> Is that right? which was, I think so, which was pretty <laughs> hilarious because she was also constantly inveighing against them for like causing the collapse of democracy itself. <laughs> It is so hypocritical. I mean, you have um, people invested uh, in other media corporations. John Hickenlooper is in, was invested in something called media, uh, Liberty Media Corporation and a Liberty Broadband Corporation. On and on down the list. Uh, Rand Paul was invested in a company uh, that manufactured antiviral COVID-19 treatment. I mean, what, what is going on there? Maybe something, maybe nothing. People have money in blind trust. There's all kinds of things going on. But when you look back at Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, divesting from his peanut farm because he didn't want the appearance of having a conflict of interest in the least. And you look how far we've come from Gotta that political moment. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in all seriousness, maybe you actually do, right? Yeah. Like that is, that is the problem. There's, of course, a million and one agricultural regulations that Jimmy Carter, you know, oversaw during his tenure as president. But the fact that these people think that they can get away with this with impunity, and in fact, Nancy Pelosi coming out and 
inveighing against uh, regulations of the sort that would keep her from yeah, creating stocks a, in the first place. This is a article from Business Insider. Uh, this is the one I had in mind. Members of Congress publicly blast Facebook, but quietly invest their savings in it. <laughs> House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called Facebook shameful and irresponsible. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon suggested prison time for Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Representative Rokana, who we interview here and generally like, uh, said Facebook should be broken up. But despite their tough talk toward the social media behemoth, all three or their spouses stood to gain financially from Facebook. So to be clear, this stock act is a disclosure requirement. The act that would ban them from actually investing in stocks and trading while they're in Congress got quietly killed by Nancy Pelosi at the end of last year, despite the fact that she came out against it and there was public backlash about her coming out openly saying, well, of course, I should be allowed to trade stocks. And it, it just it really it does speak to the fact that when it, was it comes down to— some expert foot dragging on her part yeah. on that one because she got— she got in trouble for saying she no, and then she was like, well, I guess we could do it if you really want to, and then right. she didn't. And then she did it. And that's, again, I, I hate to keep coming back. I mean, I don't hate to keep coming back to what these 20 uh, rebel Republicans want. I love to keep coming back to it because it's such an important illustration yes. of how to leverage power. If we had, I mean, this is this is the real story here, that's the, the headline that's gone going missing. If we had a real multi-party system, the kind of political factions that were able to wrest these concessions, many of which are populist, would happen much more frequently. There shouldn't just be these two parties, both of which are corporately captured. And frankly, what we saw last week was a demonstration of how small groups of people in a narrowly divided Congress can start to wrest control back for more populist interests. Now, of course, everything that they fought for and won wasn't populist. There were a lot of self-interested things, and there were a lot of things that just had nothing Mm -hmm. to do with the American people as a whole. But the fact that we live in a country where there's such a united opinion about how wrong this kind of behavior is, and there's absolutely no accountability for the big wigs in Congress. The process prevents it. You couldn't discuss it. If someone wanted to discuss it on the floor of the House, they couldn't because of the previous rules. And that's the kind of thing that we we need to at least be able to have a conversation about it. What if the American people could watch uh, a lone representative bring up this issue because someone would, yeah. you know, not you know, not every they have incentive to. Well, someone maybe. has incentive to hopefully to call out what the wealthier and more elite and better connected investors of Facebook and Tesla and whatever else are doing, and and of Pfizer and yeah. you know, with, with, especially with with those policies in particular, the you know the enormous power government had to work with the pharmaceutical industry corporations to require or mandate or do research for various COVID-related vaccines, pharmaceuticals, et cetera, uh, therapies. And (laughs) whether they have stock invested in the company has to matter, could matter. Yeah, well, look, That was the first call they made when they found out about the pandemic, some of these these figures. They call their... Their stockbroker, their brother, who's or whoever's responsible, right? The wife, whoever has the, uh, you know, maybe they're technically they're not doing it, sure. but someone who with whom uh, their finances are closely I- intermixed, yeah. They call them and let them know. It's shameful behavior. Yeah, it's disgusting. But look, maybe maybe someone will do something about it. Maybe with these new rules and this new house, we'll see people trying to force votes on these kinds of issues. It could be a really interesting demonstration of power. If you're in Matt Gates's district and get him on the horn, maybe that's something that you want to lobby him to, to actually do with this new newfound power. But it certainly will be an interesting thing to watch over the next two years. We'll have more rising for you after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis denounced the upcoming World Economic Forum being held in Davos next week, taking the opportunity to note that Florida is not open to embracing any policy ideas that might come from the meeting. Let's watch. They do this thing in Davos. They're doing it next week. All these elites come in, um, you know, the World Economic Forum, and basically, um, you know, their vision 
is they run everything and everybody else is just like a serf, like a peasant. They say they're going after energy, ESG, all these other things. And you see the Biden administration wants to, to nix gas stoves. Are you kidding me? Like we need, I want gas stoves. I mean, imagine like you, how many people had the hurricane come through, didn't have power right away, but were able to turn on uh, some. So you, you cannot go down this road, but that's exactly uh, what they want to do. And it's really weakening uh, Western society, Western values. But underlying a lot of that is the CCP. He was referring to the Chinese Communist Party there. He also made it clear in the press conference that he will seek to curb China's influence in the Sunshine State. The 53rd annual meeting will take place in Davos, Switzerland, and is set to see record turnout featuring 52 heads of state and about 600 CEOs. Climate envoy John Kerry will represent the United States. Look, I got to say, all those heads of states and hundreds of CEOs does not sound like a especially good time from my perspective. You know, I, I think that this is probably a, a wise political move. It's always healthy to make an attack against elites. And certainly this is the most elite of elite bunches gathering here at Davos. Of course, there is always this kind of... Um, what seems, from my perspective, to be a little bit of uh, not quite related culture warish mm-hmm. jab mixed in there with the gas stoves. Look, I love a gas stove as much as anybody. It takes my <laughs> electric stove forever to heat up, and my omelets haven't been the same since I moved into my new apartment. Oh, you, you went from gas to electric? I went from gas to electric. Oof, that's devastating. But it's, it's also true that, what, 12, 12.7% of all childhood asthma cases are caused by uh, gas stoves, and people should be informed what? about the health risks. Yeah, the, the, the health consequences of gas stoves are really? only just now being understood and reported on. So it's it's a serious issue. Maybe you don't care. Maybe your kids are grown, but other people care. I'm not saying there should necessarily be a ban, but, you know, pretending like there's not downsides to this or that it's just a random draconian edict coming down from on high is also a little absurd. So what, what do you make of this kind of political move from DeSantis to say, hey, I'm anti-Davos? I think it's a sign of the ascendancy of of a kind of right and left populism, uh, you know, the fusion of that, uh, which is very anti-Davos mindset. Uh, You know, the World Economic Forum brings together all these heads of state, former heads of state, current heads of state, and corporate partners, powerful elites um, who all have a lot of similar ideas and similar goals on economics, on uh, a lot of climate stuff. Um, since COVID, there's been a lot of how can we use the COVID emergency to, to you know, to the, the, the Great Reset is what it's called. How, how can society be better planned from here on out? And I'm not, and unlike Ron DeSantis, I don't think every idea that would come out of this meeting would necessarily be bad. But I think the concerns are well-founded, which is that, it's a little bit of a, the technocratic elite has a lot of blind spots, mm-hmm. is not and is not very down with democratic decision making, mm-hmm. and also not very down necessarily with civil liberties, mm-hmm. um, because those can get in the way. They, I think, they saw that with COVID, that yeah. people don't want to be required necessarily to take uh, to take vaccines and other things, don't want to be required to wear masks forever. It may have a contrasting views that that is frustrating to the elites and 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 confounds their ability to kind of like plan and organize society in, in the fashion that they want. And that's also part of the, the China aspect mm-hmm. of this, which is, you know, the whole kind of global. And I, I, th- I think trade is good. But one of the issues with, you know, trading with China and being more open with China is we've kind of inadvertently um, brought in some of the Chinese government's closed mindedness toward uh, toward criticism and free speech mm-hmm. is actually being imported into 
uh, not just not exactly Western culture, but Western decision making with our governments and our businesses. You know, people self censor institutions self censoring in order to not get priced yeah. out of the Chinese market. This is that I think point. is very bad. This is what the point that Bhatia sometimes makes about Elon Musk in China and sure. failure to critique because sure. of his factories and or the, the NBA or the uh, NBA. Activision Blizzard yeah. or you know any number of uh, U.S. celebrities or political figures or, or institutions, private which. It's a weird situation because they have the right to do. They have the free speech right to, you know, not want any criticism of China, but they're doing it because an authoritarian government that we have no control over wants that. Yeah, and money talks. You know, yeah. LeBron James gets a talking to from the NBA when he makes some anti-China uh, comments, and people care about their contracts and how much they're able to earn. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, precisely why this particular aggregation of human beings at Davos is concerning, because when you look at what aligns them, what what mm -hmm. interests that they all share, it's, it's very elite financial interests, and it's not the interest of the overwhelming majority of people who live on this planet. And it speaks to a concern that I think a lot of our viewers have, a lot of you know, independent-minded people, right and left, which is that actually the elites have so much in common. You know, they say they're Republican, they say they're Democrat, but there's so much agreement, there's so much social cooperation, right. or so enjoyment of each other's company. Precisely. You're not in that meeting. You're not, you know, in those smoke-filled, well, they're not smoke-filled, <laughs> I don't think. Davos, they're they definitely not smoke-filled. They allow proper ovens, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> there's no smoking in, uh, in those rooms. So it's, uh, it, it's uh, and it's, it's shielded from view. And I, I think it, it presents certain concerns. Obviously, you, you can go too far and be a little conspiratorial about how sure. bad it is or something. Um, you know, I think some of their economic ideas are probably good, but should be but should be embraced or allowed or be voted on. And it's still up to individual countries. Like the, you know, the U.S. We're, its own, we're our own country. We have our own. We have a respect for civil liberties. You know, on, uh, not just respect, but legally required under our constitution. So you can't just say, oh, we all went off to Davos and decided this is a good policy. Now it's going to be imposed on the people of the U.S. or of Canada or of Mexico or of any country. No, we get to decide. Right. But that's, I think, the concern people have is that this stuff gets snuck in through the back door. I mean, we just had this 4,000 pages of legislation that was rushed through right before Christmas. No one read it. But nobody read. And this was one of the asks from the 20 Freedom Caucus people who were just holding up um, the speakership vote last week. And, and the, one of the asks that they secured, which is that they have to have single-issue bills, um, or at least there has to be a single-issue title on the bill. There's a little bit of warbliness right. about what the what they were actually given. Imagine if it was debated, actual provision, right. instead of at the last minute snuck into a document that is far too long for anyone to read it, and then you have to vote on it immediately, and you have to vote yes because the whole country's economy will collapse if we just all of a sudden didn't have a right. budget. So nobody can vote against it. I mean, right. still they do. If, if it was going to actually, if the vote against it was actually going to succeed, no one could vote for it. Exactly. But, exactly. It, but it's but it's it's not it's so unserious. Yeah. Because some of the stuff in that bill should not should not be voted most, for, should be certainly. should be rejected. Most Tons certainly. of it should be rejected, but you don't get to do that because they cram it all in, they put it up there at once, it's, it's so bad. And they don't bad. give you time to read it. So another thing, one of the asks that they secured was, I think, a 72-hour period before a bill was passed where people mm -hmm. have an opportunity. I mean, it's still a very short time to read all of those pages with any kind of precision or depth, but I think they're make, moving in the right direction, and there's some important populist asks that came through yeah. that are getting really uh, under-analyzed and under-appreciated by the liberal media. Well, and previously, the vast majority of congressional representatives in both parties had no say or input in what was going into that package. Right. It's, it's the speaker and, uh, and a handful of other powerful people in both parties right. get together and decide, 
and then you have to vote for it. Yeah, that 4,000-page document we're talking about was a Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi special, you know, that is a bipartisan, secretive, non-transparent special. So it's interesting that there are these parallels between the problem with Congress and the problem with Davos mm -hmm. being the lack of transparency and democracy. Yeah, this is why we always have to hold the elite's feet to the fire. Yeah. More rising right after this. Stay with us. Representative Katie Porter announced she will be running for Senator Dianne Feinstein's California Senate seat in 2024. Porter has previously acknowledged that she was considering a bid for this expected open seat. According to The Hill, while Feinstein has not officially announced her retirement, it is anticipated that she will in the next few months. Let's watch part of Porter's announcement video. California needs a warrior in Washington. That's exactly why I'm announcing my candidacy for the United States Senate in 2024. I don't do Congress the way others often do. I use whatever power I have to speak hard truths to the powers that be, to not just challenge the status quo, but call it out, name names, and demand justice. That goes for taking on Wall Street and the big banks, big oil, and big pharma. It's why I refuse to accept corporate PAC and lobbyist campaign money. I don't want it. And I'm leading the fight to ban congressional stock trading because it's just wrong. To win these fights, it's time for new leadership in the U.S. Senate. If you agree, please go to katieporter.com and join my campaign for the U.S. Senate today. Thank you for caring about the California we can build together. According to Fox News, Porter's Senate campaign could be tainted by allegations of uh, toxic workplace culture. An ex-staffer alleged that the congresswoman made rude and even racist comments to staff and said that she, quote, ridiculed people for reporting sexual harassment. Uh, and we actually did interview a former Katie Porter staffer mm -hmm. on the show last week, last I week, believe. I um, about It was an interesting story. I'd encourage people to go back and watch that clip if they missed it. Um, she, the staffer got blamed for giving Representative Porter COVID. After she had gone to a funeral for one of her uh, former Yeah, she was going members. through something yeah. kind of traumatic. And, and the texts are, are pretty, I mean, I, I personally have a pretty high bar for, I think I, you know, there's a lot of complaining, anonymous complaining from staffers about how they're sure. treated. I think maybe a lot of young people, maybe Gen Z people don't <laughs> understand that you actually have to work sometimes and your boss is sometimes going to be a little, little uh, strict with you. This one seemed to go over a, a kind of line because we saw the text message where Katie Porter is just berating this woman for for allegedly giving her COVID. But what, who had right. COVID or first? Or at least it was demonstrating a certain lack of sensitivity that I think yeah. would be warranted in the in the circumstances. Anyway, I'm not saying that. However, you, you want to talk about her more yeah, broad I mean, policy? That's the, fine. The but. thing is that Katie Porter, regardless, I think has been one of the least disappointing progressives of the 2018 bunch for a couple of reasons. One, she didn't overextend herself in making kind of broad, very lefty commitments the way that some of the squad members have. I don't believe she's ever identified as a socialist, um, hasn't really uh, defined herself in terms of policies like abolish ICE or defund the police the way that some of the others have. She stayed more squarely in an economic populist pocket, which has made her incredibly popular. Her whiteboard display where she, you know, calls out the big banks. She was a member of the Financial Services Committee, which is a committee that people love to be on because of your proximity to Wall Street and your ability to fundraise from those institutions. She was, in fact, kicked off said committee uh, after uh, two, two years on it 
by Maxine Waters, apparently because her demonstrations were so effective. It was basically embarrassing people mm. who wanted to go ahead and be able to use these banks as a fundraising tool. So she's very effective. She flipped a red district blue back in 2018, despite being extremely progressive on an economic front. And I think it's the kind of person who could have a long Hmm. Very public career in in politics. As leftists are looking to see who can carry the banner potentially in another presidential run, someone like Katie Porter, I think, has a lot of features that would make her a broadly appealing candidate uh, in a way that some of the other squad members might start to flag on a national basis. However, um, you know, despite all of those, I think, wonderful attributes, <laughs> she's received some pushback from Democrats, from liberals, about the nature and timing of her announcement. One Twitter user, in fact, critical of Katie Porter's choice to announce when she did announce, uh, ended up saying, it's pretty disrespectful to announce ahead of Feinstein's decision, and this is one of the worst campaign launch videos I've ever seen. Another said yesterday, and, and Adam Schiff source tells me not to expect a Senate announcement today. You don't announce a campaign in the middle of a natural disaster. Uh, this is hilarious <laughs> to think that they have to wait for Dianne Feinstein to say she's going to retire. Like, she doesn't own this seat, and I'm sorry, this is not, not trying to be mean here, but we've covered this. This is an open secret now that Senator Feinstein is very old and is having issues knowing who she is talking to and what's going on. It is absolutely unacceptable that she is still in the Senate. She, this is not my opinion. This is re reporting. This, this has been very well demonstrated by people she talks to that she is not capable of doing the job, that, that she's, she's in a, a kind of elderly state where she has good days and she has bad days. But it is, it is inconceivable that she has not retired yet. She must retire. And no one should feel like they have to wait. It doesn't belong to her, especially given what's going on with her. I think that's right. the most absurd thinking. Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. It definitely has uh, the flair of those Ruth Bader Ginsburg, don't retire. It's your turn pieces that got written about when people raised the mm -hmm. legitimate concern about a woman who had survived pancreatic cancer, one of the most deadly kinds of cancers, regrettably, continuing on the bench into a Republican administration, hoping, apparently, that she could have Hillary Clinton replace her. The hubris of saying, I want to be replaced by the first woman president, and therefore I'm not going to step down under Obama, um, you know, has caused a lot of what uh, Democrats are contending with today in terms of uh, Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. I mean, even the most sympathetic pro-woman columnist like uh, Rebecca Traister, who I think participated in a lot of that leave RBG alone, she can retire when she wants to uh, rhetoric, has said after a 30-minute phone call she had with Diane Feinstein that while nothing suggested a deterioration beyond what would be normal for a person her age, the call didn't demonstrate any urgent engagement with the various crises facing the nation. Every question I asked about the radicalization of the GOP, the end of Roe, the failures of Congress, was met with a similar sunny imperviousness, evincing an undiminished belief in institutional power that may in fact explain a lot about where Feinstein and other Democratic leaders have gone wrong. And that's from one of the most pro-girl boss writers mm -hmm. that you're going to find in the United States of America. Right. And with RBG, I, unlike Feinstein, it wasn't I, I don't think people were asserting that right. she was cognitively diminished. I think yeah. she was as sharp as she as ever to the to the very end. Sure. It's just that she was making the calculation that she would have to survive a, an entire Republican term right. if she was not going to retire before Republican or potentially two Republican right. terms. Or more, I think that she she wasn't making that calculation at all. I think that she was yeah. so confident that Hillary was going to win and that Trump possibly yeah. could not win, which in some ways to me is worse because yeah. it's, it's just so hubristic.
So, so hubristic. Well, Ruth Conda forever. Ruth Conda forever. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Reason Magazine's Liz Wolf will be back with us to give her take on how the IRS went after the very poorest taxpayers despite $80 billion in new funding. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And be sure to catch us on Roku and other streaming services as well if that's more your style. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.